We're in Mark chapter 13, and uh, if anything in the Gospels, it generates more excitement, uh, generates more fear, then it's probably trying to talk about the end times. And then usually that's what is done with Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 13 and uh, Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13. Um, I, I think it's uh, interesting if you've been around long enough, you'll remember all the different times when fervor about the end of the world ramped up. Not that long ago, you had like in 2012, the Mayan calendar that we were all going to be over with then. Uh, If you made it through the millennium, we all thought we weren't going to make it through the millennium. Uh, There's been uh, all kinds of religious groups that said 1914, 1918, 1945, 1975, when the generation of 1914 passes away, and it just on and on. People have constantly tried to use Use the scriptures to show when will be the end of the world. Uh, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is showing you exactly what this text does say. Uh, I expect that what I'm going to tell you to some of you may be somewhat different than what you've always heard these texts to say and to always believe what these texts have said. So my encouragement to you is not only to take this with an open mind, but also to look at the scripture yourself as we read it and to really follow along and see what Jesus exactly is teaching. Now, we have noted our context as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings that we have seen in particularly chapters 11 and 12 that this was Jesus' final arrival into Jerusalem. And in that arrival, he immediately condemns the temple and begins pronouncing judgments upon Jerusalem. And all throughout that, he is laying out, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. It is a den of robbers, which is quoting from Jeremiah, who in that context of calling things a, a den of robbers, when Jeremiah stood by the temple, was proclaiming its destruction. Jesus does likewise in that quotation, and then also in the parable of the talents, or I mean the parable of the tenants, what exactly will the the owner of the vineyard due to those tenants who beat the servants and killed the son, well, he's going to certainly give them a miserable end and give the kingdom, the vineyard to another. Chapters 11 and 12 of of the Gospel of Mark have been all about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming judgment uh, uh, that's going to fall upon Jerusalem. You will notice that that seems to be the framework of the scene that is given to us as chapter 13 opens. You will notice that they are coming out of the temple now. And one of his disciples says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Now, have you thought about that for a minute? Because it's not like this is the first time they've been to the temple. Any practicing righteous law observing Jew would go to Jerusalem at least three times a year, every year of your life. And it's not like this is the first time they've been there. They go like, wow, this place is really amazing. We've heard all these stories, but now we've actually got to see it for ourselves. They've been to the temple over and over again. Three times a year you had to present yourself in Jerusalem and present yourself at the temple. Never mind any other obligations, vows, or feasts that you may have been keeping that would have brought you to the temple. Nobody is going to the temple and doing this as a sightseeing tour and saying, wow, this place place is really neat. We've never seen it before. 
There is something far deeper for one of the disciples to say, look at these majestic buildings. Look at how amazing this place is. Look at how beautiful it is. And I want you to consider that with the context of what has been leading up to this, that Jesus this day and the day before has spent his days describing Jerusalem's fall, the destruction of the temple. And out now we start walking out of the temple complex and to say, wow, look at this place implies far more, I believe, the idea that the temple was the representation of God with us. How can you say temple's going to be destroyed? Look at the place. Clearly God is with us. Clearly God is blessing us. In fact, it is awfully similar again to what you see in Jeremiah's day that Jesus himself quoted because Jeremiah's day, the people did not believe that there would be a judgment on Jerusalem because... The temple, the temple. Look at what we have. We have the temple in all of its glory, which represents God with the people. And if God is here in the temple and He is with us, then Jerusalem can't fall and certainly the temple wouldn't be destroyed. There's a high parallel that's being done here that after giving all of these judgments, one of the disciples to say, yeah, but... Look at what we have. And that explains Jesus' response in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There's not going to be a stone left upon another. Yes, it is beautiful, but don't put your hope in that. It's not going to last. There's going to be a complete destruction that is going to happen. If we didn't have that big 13 in the way, it would just be validating everything that Jesus has done in the last two chapters and the parables and the declarations that He's made against Jerusalem and cursing the fig tree in standing in the temple and saying, this is a den of thieves and telling a parable about tenants that the vineyard is going to be taken away from them and the city is going to be destroyed. This is what Jesus has done the last two days. It's why we will see in chapter 14 that the religious leaders are all the more intent to destroy Jesus. Because these final days, He's just walking around and He is laying out judgment proclamations. And even as they walk out of the temple, Jesus tells His disciples, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now notice what that leads into. Verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Just stop there and notice that. If you know the geography, and I probably should have tried to find a good one that we could have put on the TV. But what you have going on is Jerusalem sits on a mountain. Going out of the eastern gate, you go down into the Kidron Valley. And up to the Mount of Olives on the other side. And so there's the, the visualization. As you leave out of the East Gate, you go down the Kidron Valley, up the other side to the Mount of Olives. That's exactly what Ezekiel pictured was going to happen in the first destruction and then fulfilled again the second time around. Remember in Ezekiel's prophecy of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple and going out to the east to the nearby mountain. 
And now Jesus for the final time here is walking out of the temple. Here is the glory of the Lord going out of the east gate across the Kidron Valley. And now He rests and sits, verse 3, on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Glory of God is left. And notice then what that leads into. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask Him privately, verse 4, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign that all these things are about to happen. Now let me just ask you in your mind to answer this. When will these things be? What things? What were they just talking about a second ago? One disciple says, look at the buildings. Jesus says, not one stone of it's going to be left. Next statement. Question. When will these things be? What things? That not one stone will be left upon another. And what will be the sign that these things are about to happen? What things? That the temple's about to be destroyed. We want to know when that's going to happen. And what are the signs or things to look for to know that it's about to happen? That's what they're asking. The context of the these things is about the destruction of Jerusalem. I would like to ask you, is there anything in the question that is supposing anything either about the end of the world or about the second coming of Christ? If you study through the Gospels enough, you realize up to this point... The disciples don't even understand that Jesus is leaving yet. To think that we would be talking about a second coming, they don't even know he's going yet. We haven't even had that discussion. Uh, They're not even aware of that. That wouldn't even register to them. To speak about end of world ideas also is not in their point of view. All of their point of view is you have declared judgment upon this temple and on this city. When is that going to happen? And how will we know it's about to happen? Those are the questions that they pose. I submit to you, we'll come back to this verse in a minute, but go to verse 30 and notice that verse 30 gives us confirmation that after he talks now for the next 26 verses, Notice he will conclude that section and he will say, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That generation will not die until everything that he just talked about happens. And so that can't be the end of the world. And that can't be the second coming. He caps this massive teaching by saying it's all going to happen in your generation. And the context dictates that to us. That chapters 11 and 12 have been about the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 13 opens with the looking of the buildings. And Jesus saying there's not going to be a stone that will be left upon another. Complete waste and destruction is going to happen. And the disciples question naturally when 
And what will be the signs of those things? You will notice that Jesus then answers those very questions as you begin in verse 5. Notice, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear the wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak with the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." Notice here Jesus says, this is the beginning of the birth pains. Here's the things that are going to initially take place. Before we get to the temple's fall, here are some things that are going to occur. Events that are leading up to Jerusalem's fall. And I think it's interesting that a lot of the things that he describes, like the disciples standing before councils and beaten in synagogues and standing before governors and kings, those things are all recorded in the book of Acts. Acts records those very events of exactly what the apostles would go through over and over again, standing before the Sanhedrin council, being beaten, and having all of these different things. The apostle Paul standing before kings and governors himself and making a proclamation regarding his faith. Notice it says that they would know what to say, be the Holy Spirit saying the words, which is something that Jesus was going to confirm to them shortly as recorded in John's gospel, where they'd be given the Holy Spirit who would guide them into all truth and they'd be able to speak the very words of God. The things that are being laid out here are all things that these very disciples would absolutely experience. Even the gospel being preached to all the nations. Sometimes we read that and go, well, that hasn't happened yet. Actually, go read the New Testament again. It's stated all over the New Testament that the gospel was preached to all the nations in the first century. Colossians says it twice. Romans says it as well. That that was the very thing that had happened. In the very first century, the gospel would go to all the known nations. Paul talks about his role in that at the end of Romans as well in in accomplishing that. So my point is that in that section, there's nothing there that demands, oh, well, we must be talking about the end of the world. All of that is verified throughout the New Testament as events that would certainly happen before the fall of Jerusalem and are just these descriptions that are even seen in the book of Acts. But let's get to where everybody wants to have fun. Verse 14. (laughs) Verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. For alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been 
from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there is the Christ. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. You'll notice that now he starts laying out some of the signs. And here is the big one is verse 14. I'm going to break down that sentence for us. Let's take the back end of that sentence first. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If the things that Jesus is talking about regard the second coming or the end of the world, why would we flee to the mountains? Also, why would it only be the people in Judea? Context is continuing to dictate we are still talking about Jerusalem's fall. When we see these signs... Everybody in Judea, that whole region, not just Jerusalem, but the whole surrounding area, that whole Roman region, you need to run. You need to flee. You need to go to the mountains. And that's why he says, don't go back and take a cloak. Don't go and get something else. Don't don't pick up anything. You just need to go. You need to run. You need to run. You need to run and hurry. And thus the woes about may it not be in winter. May, it, may you not be pregnant or nursing infants. I will not gross you out on the details. If you read anything about the book Wars written by Josephus, which is a record of what happened in AD 70's siege and destruction, you will understand why it was bad for the pregnant women and nursing women. It was a horrifying experience of what takes place in the city once the city falls under the siege of the Roman Empire. Uh, Death, destruction, uh, eating of children, it's, it's a horrifying event of what takes place. And that's what's being described here is that God would cut off this event because of how bad it's going to be upon Jerusalem. Verse 14 again. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. What is this abomination of desolation? That that imagery comes from Daniel. In fact, even Matthew's account says, as the prophet Daniel said, And it's important if we had time for a whole other hour, we could dig into all of Daniel and read all of those various events. The good news is, on Sunday morning Bible class, we're in Daniel, so guess what? We'll get there, and we'll get to totally uh, fill in all of those things, and completely dig in, and with great total uh, exposition and time, get to lay out, okay, here's everything that's said about that, but uh, write those passages down, go read those for yourself. What you will see is those passages are talking about an assault on Jerusalem. 
There's going to be an entity, a figure, or a nation, or a person who's going to come up against Jerusalem. That's what Daniel is prophesying. It's why he's sick to his stomach and upset about the visions that he's seen. He's seen the power of the of the holy people being being shattered. Uh, you have even some authors say describes this unspeakable affront against the holiness of God's house and even of God Himself. That's the whole idea is that you are going to see some nation, some person, some power, some entity begin to make its move against Jerusalem. One of the great things that we have to help us is you have when you have the gospel accounts kind of all working together and they say different things. It is interesting that rather than Luke saying the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand, he helps you understand Because he just simply says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, there you go, (laughs) there you go, that helps quite a bit. That makes a whole lot of sense of the abomination of desolation and fits perfectly with what Daniel 9, 11, and 12 are describing is that when you see armies going where they ought not be going, you should run. When they start making movements that are unexpected, that should draw your attention. Uh, it doesn't happen a whole lot around here. When I was a kid growing up in San Diego, back when I was a kid, San Diego was a huge naval base. Top Gun, whole, whole nine yards was there. And you got used to certain exercises. But then you, when things didn't go like you would expect, everybody would get on the news and go, what was that about? Because <laughs> we're like, we realized this is a really important area with all of the ships and aircraft carriers and all that. And things start moving around, you kind of raise an eyebrow. That's what Jesus is saying. When you see armies doing things that they ought not be doing, you start catching wind of that. When you see them invade Judea, you need to run, you need to run, you need to run. That's what this paragraph is describing then. But now verse 24. What about this? Here's the event. Verse 24. After those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with her great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now surely, that's the end. Right? I mean, that really sounds like it few problems with that as we already mentioned that verse 30 said that generation will not take will not pass away till all these things take place we're still in that in that window and we're still in the context of answering the question when will these things be and what will be the sign of the coming it's important that we understand that these kinds of descriptions are found all over the place in scripture Sometimes we will come into a passage like Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and think, well, that kind of language is always referring to the second coming of Christ or it's always referring to the end of the world. If I had another half an hour, then I'd show you all the places that that's not the case. I tried to put a bunch of them on the screen that you can go look at them for yourself and read them for yourself. But I'm going to give you a couple of them just to show you. Like Isaiah 13 in verse 9. 
Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their consolations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world of its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. I will lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. If I took that and lifted it out of context, that really sounds like the end, doesn't it? I mean, we're making mankind, we're going to put them to an end, put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. Mankind will be more rare than fine gold. We've got the heavens and the stars not giving their light. The sun is being darkened. The moon is not giving its light. Their heaven is trembling. Their earth is shaken completely out of its place. And yet, if you read the context just a few verses in front of it, it said this was the oracle against Babylon, Isaiah 13, verse 1. All of that language is used by God to symbolize judgment, but it doesn't specify who just because you read about stars falling and the sun not shining and the moon not giving its light and things like that. I've always given this summary. It means lights out. Somebody's gone, but you have to read and see who. So in Isaiah 13, the context is Babylon. In our context in Mark 13, it's lights out for Jerusalem. They will be no more. That's going to be the end of them. They are going to fall and they're not going to rise again. So, so important to see that that kind of language is used in many, many, many places in scriptures. It's the way God talks when he describes judgment. The book of Zechariah is that way. The book of Daniel is that way. The book of Revelation is that way. There are lots of lots of places. Isaiah has it like we just looked at, like Matthew 24, where God uses that kind of language. And it's a vivid language to describe the end of a people's and nations. And what Jesus is doing is depicting the severity of the end of this age. The physical temple is not going to last any longer. This is not going to be the place where God is going to meet His people. And you might read verse 26 and go, yeah, but it says they're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And I will show you lots of places where God says that other places in the prophecies as well in the Old Testament as well as in the New. But I, 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 this one I think is the most valuable is the quickest help to that. If you remember when Jesus is on trial, Caiaphas wants to challenge Jesus. Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus says to him in Matthew 26, 64, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. How was Caiaphas going to see Christ coming in the clouds? Can't be the second coming. You see, again, that is language of judgment. Christ is coming against Jerusalem. And Caiaphas, you're going to see my power 
and you're going to see me come against this nation and bring my judgment against you. Again, that is common language in scriptures. The son of man coming in the clouds or God coming in the clouds is frequently used as an image of judgment. And those other passages show that as well. What about verse 27? He'll send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds. Picture here is the same idea of God is preserving his people, which is also frequently used in scriptures. I don't have time to show you all of those. I hope you'll write all of those down and go read all of those. And you'll see the same thing that God promised after judgment of Jerusalem, God is gathering his people in. Which, by the way, that happens quite a bit. After even Jesus proclaims judgment on Jerusalem, you see Acts 2, a gathering of people that God is calling his elect and bringing them in. And that would continue to be the case. And the prophets spoke very much of that way. You will notice that verse 27, nothing in there says that he's sending his angels and gathering his elect to heaven. It doesn't say that. Rather, it is God restoring his people after the judgment is going to happen. That makes the rest of this text really very simple when we keep it in this context. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves. You know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Very simple message. Know with certainty that this event is going to happen. I understand that this will happen beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is no way this is not going to take place. Uh, you think about that idea. He uses the idea of when you look at the fig tree, you can know it's about to put out leaves. You know that summer is near. I thought we have a very good Florida parallel. In the heat of summer, when you feel a cool breeze... You people have been here long enough. You know what's going to happen. It's going to rain hard. <laughs> you don't get just random cool breezes in the middle of summer here. All You go, oh, we're about to get it. It's going to rain really hard. That's what Jesus is doing is saying, I want you to learn the lesson of the fig tree. When you see certain events, you know a certain reality. All of these things that he's just laid out were all signs that you would know. When you see these certain things happen, you know with certainty this destruction, this judgment is going to come. I will emphasize verse 30 again. Notice after he has said all of those things, including gathering the elect with his angels, including the Son of Man coming in the clouds, including the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling from heaven. That's all before this sentence. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All the things that he's laying out here are simply judgment images to befall Jerusalem. Notice verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour. Now, remember, the disciples asked two things here. When and what are the signs? He's laid out all kinds of signs. Watch for this, watch for this, watch for this. When you see these certain events, you see the abomination of desolation. When you see the the uh, wars and things like that, that's the beginning of the birth pains. You watch for all those things. But they also wanted to know when. 
When exactly is that going to happen? Which, you know, if you knew your nation was going to fall, you would probably ask, now, on what day is that going to be, Lord? And he'd say, could you tell me May 1st? You know, I would know exactly when. And notice he says, the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Verse 34, it will be like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Notice he says, the day and the hour, no one knows. Here's my answer. This is standing outside. Here's my explanation as to what Jesus means by that. doesn't say this here, but this is, how does he not know? My answer is, because it hadn't been determined yet. All the events are still going to be unfolding. The moment when God is going to bring the hammer down and bring final judgment on Jerusalem, that date hadn't been determined yet. You see, even Paul indicate those kinds of words. When he speaks of the, the, the Israel nation, the Jews are filling up their sins to the uttermost. There, it was an image of like there's this cup and they're just filling up wrath for themselves. And if there's going to be a point where it will finally hit the line and God is going to act. It seems to me what this is doing is saying it hasn't been determined May 1st yet, but know with certainty it's going to happen. Notice the repetition, verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. Over and over it says you need to watch, you need to be careful, you need to look. Now, with my last couple minutes, what's the big deal? Number one. I believe it is important to show that there is absolutely nothing in this text that refers to the second coming or the end of the world. And that would also include Luke 21 and also include Matthew 24. Context doesn't allow it. The words themselves do not allow it. And even the final statement, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, does not allow it. The reason why this is important is because this passage is the reason why when something happens in a world event, there will be groups of people who will start saying, see, these are the signs of the end. And now you know better. No, they're not. Wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom and famines and tsunamis and European unions and whatever else happens are not signs of the end of the world. That's not given. He was talking about the fall of Jerusalem when he spoke about wars and nations and kings and all of those kinds of things. Second, if we've studied the New Testament well enough, we know The scriptures are very plain in saying there are absolutely no signs that are going to be given for the return of Jesus. Would you turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5 and just read these couple verses with me. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now you probably know 1 Thessalonians 4 very well. All about when the Lord returns and we will be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air. Therefore comfort one another with these words. 
So now he says in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, which is what he's been talking about, about this second coming, you have no need to, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Then what you have Paul saying is when the Lord does come, There's not going to be a warning. There is not going to be a sign. There is not a world event that you're going to be able to look at and go, well, because that happened, we know the end of the world is about to take place. There is no sign. Here is your statement. He will come like a thief. Well, do you know when that will be? When is a thief going to come and rob your house? I sure wish I knew. I'd be ready. (laughs) That's the whole idea. In fact, I remember saying that to my wife at the end of 1999, and I said, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen because everybody thinks it is. And Jesus says, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be a time when you don't think it's going to happen. Not when everybody's going, are we going to be breathing on January 1st? We don't know. It doesn't seem to be what Jesus is talking about. Which then leads us to this important finale for us. What the Apostle Paul says is that we need to be watching and we need to always be ready. Since there are no signs, since there are no warnings, since there are no let's watch for certain events to take place and then we will know. Then friends, how ought we live our lives knowing that to be true? If Jesus says that his return will be a surprise and you will have no forewarning whatsoever of his arrival, then how should we live our lives today? How should we live our lives? We should always ask ourselves this question. If the Lord returned in five minutes, are you ready? Are you ready right now for his arrival? That's what we have to constantly have in our minds and in our hearts. Are you ready for Him to come? There is not going to be a warning or there's not going to be this time where we go, okay, well now I know I need to start getting ready because certain things are happening. We are always called to be ready and I want us to be ready on three levels. Number one, you and I don't know when we're going to die. We all like to think we're all going out at like 102 years old and on our terms and all that kind of stuff. We're all going to live a real long life. We don't know that. You don't know when you're going to die as an individual, number one. Two, we don't know when a nation is going to be judged by God. Nations rise and fall all the time. I have to explain to my kids the Soviet Union. They have no idea what that was. All of us as kids, that was a scary thing doesn't even exist. You don't know when your nation is going to rise and when your nation is going to fall. Number three, you don't know when the second coming is going to be. There are three important reasons why to always be ready. You don't know when you're going to die. We don't know when the nation is going to go. And we don't know when God's going to come. So how ought we live our lives? 
What should we do differently? And think about it like this. What would you do differently if you knew he was coming at 12 o'clock today? What would you do differently if you knew he was coming Monday morning? What would you do differently this week if you knew he was coming next Sunday? What would you do differently this month if you knew he was coming April 1st? What would you do differently this year if you knew he came at the end of the year? What Paul is saying is that's how you're supposed to live every day. Every day is lived with that intensity and with that awareness that it may be today. Can we help you come to Jesus today before it's too late to give your life to him and follow and serve him with all of your heart, to love the Lord your God, confess him to be the son of God who died for your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be a child of his. And then you can be like the apostle Paul says, we're children of light. We have no need to fear We have no need for concern. We can have wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of things happen in the world. It doesn't matter. We just know one day we'll get to go home and be with God. That's our hope. Why don't you enjoy that hope? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?